Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome to another week of Science and Podcast, presented by Science and Pictures Magazine. As per usual, I am one of your co-hosts, Madison Dix, here with your other co-host, Adelman Jared. Jared Adelman. Yes. Yep. Now I go backwards this time. That's fun. We want to have fun on this podcast. Our mission is to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. Um, so we want to bring you all of the science with none of the headache, none of the pretension, none of the, what did you just say? That's basically what we try to do here. And um, we also like to make a lot of jokes and turn things upside down and backwards and share fun facts. Right, Jared? Yes, which actually makes me think about... Uh... A, a correction that I have to add uh, from last week about our um, our discussion. It was a heavy discussion about uh, the genitalia of reptiles. Um, very heavy correction about turtle genitalia that I will probably do at the very end of this episode, just uh, so the kitties go to bed. But anyone who wants to learn about turtle genitalia, stick around. Oh my goodness, our first correction corner! Stick around mm-hmm. till the end of the episode if you want to hear the truth about turtle genitalia. It's I'm not an inconvenient one, but... It's something you might not be thankful that I told you. Uh, an inconvenient <laughs> truth about turtle penises. <laughs> Just gotta put it out there. Ooh, that's funny. Um, I'm definitely motivated now to get through my article, so we can get to that. Um, <laughs> but I'm actually also excited to talk about my article. Um, oh, yeah? So I found it on Eureka Alert in the archaeology section. Ooh. The title is Beyond One-Way Determinism. San Frediano's Miracle and Climate Change in Central and Northern Italy in Late Antiquity. Interesting. Right. I would like to think I have an idea of what one way to determine him is. Deter- deter- I can't even say it, so I obviously don't know what it is. <laughs> one way determinism? We will, yes. we will get to that. Don't you worry. We will de-jargon it. We will make sense of it. Uh, but before we dive into the article, um, two things. One, we have some fun facts we want to share, as we always do, in the fun fact corner. Woohoo. And two, um, I forgot to thank our listeners during the intro. So, listeners, if you've made it this far, an extra big thank you. No, seriously, thank you so much for listening. Um, we are just a tiny podcast, just growing, growing so small. Um, and every single listen counts. So, thank you for listening. Uh, if you like this podcast, maybe share it with a friend. It also helps us if you rate review and subscribe that helps other people actually find us in like apple podcasts and spotify and all of those good places um so we really appreciate you listening would love it if you'd share and if you have a reason that you don't want to share this podcast with someone else something you don't like about it tell us we're just a baby we have so much time to grow and change so yeah if you have any feedback you can also talk to us we are on instagram at science underscore in underscore podcast also on Facebook at Science and Podcast. And for those of you who like um, do things the a little more 1990s way, we also have an email address. We sure do. Yep. And it is podcast at scienceandpictures.com. You thought I was convenient, I would say. <laughs> so talk to us. We don't bite unless we are hungry. I frequently am, but not for people. That didn't sound very convincing. Anyway, let's keep going. I going. only eat the rich. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so fun fact corner. What's your fun fact for us this week, Jared? 
My fun fact is something that I would have liked uh, to let uh, you know a little bit more about. Shade is about to be thrown. But um, it turns out that the origin of modern rainforest in general can actually be uh, traced back to the very It's a same... garden! What's up? It's a garden. It's a garden. A garden caused by the same bolide impact extraterrestrial-wise uh, that ended most dinosaur sand about three quarters of all life at that time. But uh, using uh, fossilized pollen and other sorts of records, we can see that modern rainforests pop up just about right after that, taking advantage of all the spaces that were left by everything that didn't make it, um, which is really cool. Oh, okay. So that's a totally different thing than what I thought you were going to say. There's some really interesting research about um, plant dispersal in rainforests that points to the fact that they were really well-managed gardens by the indigenous peoples in the areas. Oh, that's so also the, a fun fact. Yeah, so not like the existence of rainforest as like an ecosystem, but the specific rainforests that were encountered in the Americas during colonization. That is really cool and makes a lot more sense that people who were much more tied to the land would understand its needs a lot better than people like us would. Yeah, um, it'd be cool if uh, we learned that. <laughs> sure would. Sure would. Um, now, Madison, I would have loved to tell you more about this, uh, and I did try to view the full text, but it turns out that my very favorite uh, tool for bypassing the rampant sort of, you know, squanching of people being able to view science uh, as a general public, SciHub is paused at the moment. No! Um, SciHub! Yeah. Our... Mm -hmm. Maybe one day future sponsor. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Now, um, it was paused by the founder herself, Alexandra uh, Elbakian. Uh, she has had a lot of flack from uh, Moscow lately. Uh, you know, Russia, of course. Um, and a lot like of other... Getting uh, flack from Moscow is a sign you're doing something right. Oh, absolutely. Um, also, she obviously needs help in fighting these. And, you know, there's nothing much that we can do for her besides supporting her. We can support by uh, donating. Now, it's been made hard because she used to accept donations uh, via PayPal, which has blacklisted her. So if you have Bitcoin, you can donate Bitcoin uh, to the Sci SciHub. I was about to say SciPy. Give us Bitcoin too. But before that, give her Bitcoin. Oh, I don't know what we would <laughs> do if you gave us a Bitcoin. Probably try to eat it. Like we found out before this episode started recording, I don't even... I still don't understand what it is. You've explained it well, but I... I don't get it. Um, but yeah, I'm going to figure out how to get some Bitcoin and I'm going to donate to uh, her as well. But I'm also going to provide a link in the episode description for anyone else that would like to donate to the very important cause of open science. Oh, yay. Okay. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, we really like SciHub. We really like SciHub because um, they make science free and accessible. They make it much easier for us to do this podcast because they take scientific articles that are locked behind a paywall and publish them for free. Now, in case you're wondering, that does not hurt the scientists. The scientists do not get paid every time you view their work. So this isn't like the music industry issue. It actually is fine for scientists that more people are seeing their work. So it's, it's good for everybody to have it more open and out there. Um, except for the very few people who are profiting, um, who again are scientists themselves. Not to mention, I was looking through a lot of message boards too, because I I had no idea what happened, why SciHub had had stopped, and there are there were a lot of scientists advocating for SciHub too, because even scientists who are partnered with universities and other in, in, institutions don't have the ability to access every single article, so they have to pay out of pocket for it. Actual scientists have to pay out of pocket to view science, which is so backwards. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's just this weird middleman system that we have currently, where like, 
you have to pay to view scientists work and scientists have to pay to view other scientists work. And it's all about just like basically keeping science like out of the hands of the public and it's not cool. So SciHub is all about changing that. And SciHub is in trouble right now. So if you have any Bitcoins, throw them at SciHub. Yeah, send them over to Alexandra. Yes. Okay. Sorry, not, not first name basis. Send them over to uh, Alexandra Elbakian. We're so casual here on this podcast. <laughs> we love to refer to people who have doctor titles by the first name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry again oh, to Dr. Miranda L. Montgomery. Um, <laughs> Dr. Montgomery. Speaking of, actually, my fun fact this week is from her book again. It's from Lessons from Plants. Did you know that the first generation of plants to retake an area and start growing again after a big disaster like um like a volcano or like in asphalt (laughs) those first plants actually change the ecosystem using secretions around their roots that attract very specific organisms like microbes that then change like they process that dead stuff, the asphalt or the volcanic ash, and they process it in a way that makes it accessible to other plants. So like they're called pioneer plants and they go in and they make things better for everyone else. So everyone else can follow. Now that is incredibly interesting, especially when you consider the debate about what to, to land first, because it, a lot of people talk about it like it's settled, but no one actually knows whether plants or animals made it to land first. And there's a lot of people who argue that soil arthropods and other things like that were the ones that provided the right conditions for plants to come on. So that, oh, that's so cool to think about. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. She doesn't have any commentary in there about like the origins of life on land, like who came first, plants or animals or what single cell pioneer. Um <laughs> That's partly my fault. My mind always just goes as far back as possible to like. I love that. I like that you make connections like that because my brain goes immediately to like social justice issues and the fact that, you know, the first, let's say, like black person in an all white institution is a pioneer and they need to be allowed to change things in order for that diversity to improve. And that is why uh, this podcast is better for two people. Yes, it is. We span, we get, we've got geologic time. We've got the past and the future, <laughs> but not the present. Just kidding. The present, well, we could all work on it. The present it. is us recording this episode. So sorry, folks. The present is ours. Mm-hmm. Oh, we are a little bit quantum positioned right now, aren't we? Because right now we're in the present recording this episode, but we're also in your ears in the future. That Whoa. Quantum worm. Earworm. Quantum earworm. That could be the title episode, although it would have nothing to do with what the article is about. <laughs> so why don't we dive into that? Okay. Uh, these fun facts have been fun, but let's get serious. Moderately serious. Let's get scientific. Okay. Yeah. All right. So diving into the article at hand. Once again, the title, Beyond One-Way Determinism, San Frediano's Miracle and Climate Change in Central and Northern Italy in Late Antiquity. So I found this article on Eureka Alert in the archaeology section, and I can't really pull out one scientist to feature as like the main author of this study because it's a really big team of researchers, a lot of collaboration. So well, that's good too that there's yeah, it is good. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a theme of the article today is collaboration and interdisciplinary work. It's like a melding of history and science and a bunch of disciplines within science. It's pretty cool, Love um, it. but it's a big team. So I am going to say all of their names because they're all very important, 
but I am going to mispronounce most of them probably because most of them are, well, they're from a mix of places, but mostly uh, University of Pisa in Italy, the University of Warsaw in Poland, and then the Max Planck Institute for Science of Human History in Germany. So they're from all over Europe. Can I give you one more fun fact? Okay. I associate Pisa more with a restaurant in my hometown more than the actual city because I uh, grew up around a place called Pisa Pizza and I don't think of the city or the tower anymore, just how good that pizza was. <laughs> All right. So yeah, not the not the city, not the pizza, the university. The yes, university. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here are our scientists this week. Giovanni Zanchetta, Monica Bini, Kevin Bloomfield, Adam Izdebeski. Nicola Vivoli, Eleonora Reggiatieri, Ilaria Isola, Russell N. Drysdale, Petra Banjo, 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 I'm sorry, Petra, John C. Hellstrom, Robert Vizniveski, Anthony E. Fallick, uh, Stefano Natali, and Marco Lupicini. Whew. Wow. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people. Um, I did want to give a special shout out though to the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History because it's like a really cool organization. So you can actually, if you're interested in their stuff, um, their stuff is um, targeting fundamental questions of human history and evolution since the Paleolithic. Uh, nice. Including, yeah. So their main interdisciplinary research departments. Um, are the Department of Archaeology, the Department of Archaeogenetics, and the Department of Linguistic and Cultural Evolution. Archaeogenetics sounds very exciting. Right? Yeah. I feel like I'm probably going to try to find more stuff from them in the future. They just, I really like what they're all about. Like, Hell yeah, man. Interdisciplinary studies, connecting scientists, connecting history and climate. Um, they also have front page on their website, an anti-racism statement, like pledging solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., even though they're in Germany. Um, so, yeah. I they, will also link their website in the episode description. Cool. Yeah. Their, their website is cool. Yeah. The Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. Love them. Um, so, anyway, this article has to do with a certain period of history, the 6th century BCE. So after Christ, whatever. Will this be part of our jargon corner? Yes, it will. And I was going to say our jargon corner is about as long as our list of authors. So I've split it up into two sections for us. We have two mini jargon corners today. (laughs) So. Part one and part two. Yeah. Here is jargon corner part one coming to us from the uh, history and sociology side of this study. Jargon number one. The Roman Empire. What is it? (laughs) Oh, boy. The Roman Empire, I think, is very commonly mistaken, at least accomplishment-wise, to the Greek Empire. But it was a, I want to say Mediterranean, mostly, um, area empire that was very, very, very prominent in their effect on the world hereafter. Yep. Very prominent effect on the world. Uh, Started in the Mediterranean, specifically Rome in Italy, um, and spread like goddamn wildfire. So the Roman Empire is, it grew out of the Roman Republic, which was putting down roots and spreading even before that. Um, But the Roman Empire officially began when Julius Caesar was appointed the dictator. So that was the first time they had a dictator and not like a Senate deciding things as a group. And things started to change quite a bit from that point on. Um, A tuber 
Yep, yep, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, he was assassinated shortly after claiming power. Um, and so, like, the first, like, couple decades of the Roman Empire were, like, really ooh, not so great because there was a, a lot of drama. But after Augustus took power, um, right after Jesus' times, actually, um, like, the first 200 years of the empire uh, were super peaceful. They were actually referred to as the Pax Romana. Um, okay. and it's a period of unprecedented stability and prosperity in Europe. So it was like the time when things were most stable and there was the most like learning and documentation and the arts were flourishing. Um, it's a period that they dive back into a lot in the Renaissance later in history. In terms of um, like drawing inspiration? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, so this is like the classical period is what they consider it. Um, but anyway, back into history. Um, so it was super peaceful for the first 200 years, but then, uh, things got hinky again. Um, and the empire ended up splitting into two empires, the Eastern and the Western empire in the fourth century. Um, the Eastern empire was centered in Constantinople. Um, it got real religious. It did its own thing, lasted for like a thousand more years, but we're going to put that away for now. Cause we're not going to talk about it. We're focused on the Western empire, which was centered in Rome and, Basically was like all of Western Europe at the time was under this empire until the year 476 in the common era after Jesus um, with the fall of Rome. Have you ever heard of the fall of Rome? Um, yes, it was when Rome fell. Yeah, super dramatic, uh, super <laughs> self-explanatory. Uh, it was over. You do bring up a good point with, with, with the common era thing, which is something I find I have to explain a lot more than I expected, which is that uh, BC and AD are... They're okay to use, but mm -hmm. if you're not Catholic, there is another way to say it, which is the Common Era, CE, and then before the Common Era, which is BCE. That's how it's generally treated in the scientific literature. Actually, I should have put that in the jargon corner. So thank you for bringing it up because there are a lot of dates in this paper. Yeah. So um, BCE is before Common Era, means the same thing as BC, which is before Christ. Mm -hmm. um, CE means Common Era, means the same thing as AD, Ado Domini, in the year of our Lord, whatever. Wait, that's... Um, that doesn't mean after death. Oh, no. That's another thing. That's some nonsense to squash. Yeah, AD does not mean after death. They didn't just, no. like, not count in the years that Jesus was alive. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I mean, that that method of naming the years was not the method at the time that Jesus lived. It was hundreds of years before they started labeling the years that way. Um, back then, they were using the Jewish count count calendar. But now we're getting into way too much history. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm having everything flashback from like every course I used to take on like Western Civ. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, history is super fascinating, but I do want to keep it kind of skinny um, so that we don't get lost. Makes sense. <laughs> so back to the fall of Rome. Um, it was dramatic. It happened. Um, and after the fall of Rome, that's when the we switch in our terminology from the era of classical antiquity into the Middle Ages. So would you say that uh, after Rome had fallen, it could not get up? I would. I would say that. Fantastic. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up, said Rome. <laughs> um, so you might be wondering, um, what was Rome all about? Well, um, there's a well-paid military. Anyone can join if they want to do the bidding of the emperor. Um, and mostly the bidding of the emperor is expanding the empire into new territories um, defending territories against other powers that are trying to expand or defend their own territories. Um, just trying to get as big as possible, basically. Um, 
the citizenship laws um, and like other laws and penalties very much varied from state to state. The nice thing about the Roman Empire is that it's not a bureaucracy. It's not like one central government that controls what everyone else does. There's one central military that somewhat controls or sets limits on what everyone else does, but it's mostly composed of city-states that sort of do their own thing within reason. Isn't there a word for that, like a militocracy or something? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It was an empire. I'm not sure. Um, So one of the cool things about being in the Roman Empire is you can sort of do things the way you used to do before you were a part of the empire. Um, You can be whatever religion you want, as long as you don't try to overthrow the government and make everyone believe the same thing you do. Um, But the awful thing about the Roman Empire is that you had a one in three chance of being a slave. Oh, boy. Lots of slaves in the Roman Empire. So, like, mm, not great, um, but very powerful and very large. Um, Okay, so that was jargon number one. We know a little bit more about the Roman Empire now. Um, How about the Dark Ages? Ever heard of the Dark Ages? The Dark Ages are... Not a good time. I think the Dark Ages are most heavily associated with the uh, with with plague, right? The plague and Christianity. Um, there's a lot of plague in the Dark Ages. There's a lot of plague before the Dark Ages too. But you're right. Um, people do s- tend to associate illness and plague with the Dark Ages, along with a lot of other negative stuff. Um, historians are trying to move away from calling the Dark Ages the Dark Ages um, because it wasn't necessarily all bad um and the reason they were originally called the dark ages was because it's so hard to get information about what was happening during the dark ages so like Um, informational dark exactly dark informationally and that's mostly because the central power rome fell and so then everybody just sort of went and started doing their own things locally so there was no big like palace where all of the records were kept or anything like that things were you know spaced out and people fled these big cities um it was very urban and very lots of metropolises um during the roman era but then in the dark ages it became much more agricultural and town to town to town so did it is there still that like informational gap where it like took societies a bit more expanding for them to be able to leave a record or did just like did, did technology improve Um, It's still hard to find records. However, science has improved in our ability to get information about that period in other ways, other than relying on people's written records. Gotcha. Yeah, which we're going to get into later. Um, But yeah, so that's the Dark Ages. Um, The main thing you need to know about the Dark Ages is that when we come out of the Dark Ages and we have information again, the Catholic Church has all of the power. Church and state are one and the same. That is the major shift that occurs in the Dark Ages. So not good. No. So like before, you could kind of believe whatever you wanted. During and after the Dark Ages, you got to be Christian or you're going to get killed. I wanted to say one more thing about that, by the way, because I was really interested because Genghis Khan, who was very much after the Roman Empire, but also was very heavy on letting people believe what they want. I wonder if he was taking an example from the Roman Empire, which... Uh, obviously the the religious freedom would have made people less likely to revolt. So I wonder if he was learning from the mistakes of other empires to pretty much take over the world when he did it. That is super interesting. I have no idea, but here's what I do know is that modern leaders are always talking about the Roman empire, especially the fall of the Roman empire. 
Everyone's afraid of falling like the Roman Empire. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, we've covered the Roman Empire, then the Dark Ages, which came after. So that is the historical period that we're in. We're in the hundred years between the Roman Empire and the Dark Ages. The sixth century is when that switch happens. Uh, So in... The 6th century, is that like the year 500 plus, just to get that right in my head? Yep, 495 um, to 505. I mean, to 605. (laughs) Sorry, it's not a 10-year period. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm just just trying to get myself situated. Thank you. Yes, yeah. The 6th century is the years that start with 5. Very good. Mm -hmm. By the Uh, way, that's uh, that's where the Hebrew calendar is at right now. We're in the 5,000s. Whose calendar? The Hebrew calendar. Oh, I'm sorry. I used to be Jewish. Uh... Yeah. No, that's okay. I just, I didn't know what you said. I thought you said heathen. And I was like, I didn't realize I had a calendar. For heathens. Because I'm a heathen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that those are our history jargon. And now let's get into more of the uh, the scientific jargon a little bit. Okay. Uh, what's climate? A climate is uh, any broad scale pattern in uh, temperature, precipitation, other effects of uh, local environments uh, in a time scale of 30 years plus. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Or in like very simple terms, it is the weather trends in an area over a long period of time. 30 years or more. Um, so if it like snows one day but the rest of the time it's really hot, your weather your climate is not snowy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's climate. Just wanted to define that real quick. Have you ever heard of an ideology called environmental determinism? Yes, I've heard of it. No, I cannot explain it. Okay, it's also known as climactic determinism or geographical determinism. And it's the study of how a physical environment predisposes societies towards particular trajectories in their development. Interesting. Um, Okay. Yeah. So kind of like how like catastrophes shape the people that live after them? Yes, exactly. So you can see why this is included in the jargon. Yeah, yeah. Um, So... It is important to look at the interactions between a physical environment and the culture and societies that are there. The problem with environmental determinism is that it's one-way determinism. Um, So it undervalues human agency in these situations. And the ideas associated with environmental determinism have been used to justify a lot of bad things. Uh, I see where this is going. Yeah. uh, probably because it's very easy to blame certain groups of people for the ways that climate change is currently, literally currently affecting them. So that's the fear that this ideology will will do that in the present and the future. Because in the past, it's been used to basically discount the humanity of whole populations because of the climate that they're from. So, for example, Thomas Jefferson, who if you think he's great, he's not. Um, he was a slave owner and he supported, um, and legitimized African colonization and slave trade by arguing that tropical climates made people uncivilized by nature. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's that idea that you can tell what the people or societies are going to be like in a place based on the climate and geographical features of that place. So basically he would have been a eugenicist if that was an idea when he was alive. Yeah. And it kind of was. I mean, he was a a a Lamarckian theorist, if that gives you any ideas. (laughs) Yeah, so not cool. Um, Definitely not cool. So that's the problem with environmental determinism. And then on the flip side of that coin, we have social determinism. Any idea what that is? 
Um, I would guess the same thing, but like coming from like a person's social background. Kinda, yeah. It's like our social interactions and constructs are the only thing that determine individual behavior. So no biological or objective factors. Um, a social determinist looks at only social phenomena, like customs and expectations, education, to decide whether or not a given person is going to do something like writing poetry or committing murder. <laughs> Interesting. So basically, if we're t if we're framing this as like nature versus nurture, this is like entirely nurture. Yeah. So this okay. is like, oh, um, you come from a culture that believes this, this, and this, which means you are a murderer. Oh, Jesus. No. <laughs> no. So that's another... That's another no-no because it's another uh, example of one-way determinism. Um, also straight up racism. Yeah, exactly. One-way determinism um, also has hand-in-hand -hand with racism, hand-in-hand -hand with putting things in little boxes. Uh, that's why I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's our, jargon, that's our jargon corner number one. We've got the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, climate, environmental determinism, and social determinism. Now, let's go into... A little history, a little setting for where this study takes place. Okay. So we're in central slash northern Italy. So above Rome, around Milan, that sort of area. Um, so not down near the toes and the heel of the boot, near like your knee on the boot. You could have just said the boot is part, where we are. the same message. <laughs> <laughs> and we're looking specifically at the 6th century. So right between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Middle Ages. And in this period, in this region, ooh, uh, things are a little bit rough. So the Roman Empire just fell, like 10 years ago. Um, oh well, the Western Roman Empire did. But the Eastern Roman Empire, centered in Constantinople, still trying to control things, especially back in Italy. So we've got the Eastern Roman Empire trying to conquer Italy, so there's a lot of war going on with these Eastern Romans reconquering the Italian peninsula. Um, so that's war. And then we've also got, for the second half of the century, after that war finally subsides, then suddenly the Lombards cross over the Alps and invade Northern Italy and war starts again. Boy. Um, in the midst of all this, um, we also have a plague happening. It's called the Plague of Justinian. <laughs> Um, which is part of another thing that's credited with the fall of Rome. This plague was big. It kept resurging over and over again, over like a hundred years. Question. Mm -hmm. Is this also Yersinia pestis, the one that causes the other regular, you know, the, the general plague? I don't know what those words meant. So, you know, the whole, like the plague that people tie to like the bubonic plague. Yeah. So the bubonic plague is one of three kinds of the same uh, I think it's a bacterium that can manifest inside. Oh, you're going into like the the epidemiology of it and the virus. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is that it was a plague. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> they know either. I don't know. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, That's... if you ask a virologist or you could ask a scientist, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what kind of plague it was, but I know it wasn't a good one. Never heard of a good plague. <laughs> Definitely um, not. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be called a plague. Um, so that's causing problems. Um, there's also evidence of widespread food insecurity. Um, and there's a ton of human migration, people just like leaving these cities um, where the plague is and where all this bad stuff is happening. So lots of people moving around. So you could characterize it as a period of upheaval. 
for sure. Absolutely. Uh, it's rough. Um, and then at the same time, in the text of this period that you find the evidence of all of the stuff I just mentioned, you also find tons of stories about saints doing miracles. And um, basically, power is changing over from local leaders to bishops. Um, no more secular leaders. Power is going into the hands of the church. This thing called um, the cult of the saints is gaining power, um, which is basically people people coming to the church because they believe in the miracles of saints and they believe in these stories. So it's like gathering church followers at the local level um, and then bringing them into the faith. Um, so the church takes over. The Dark Ages begin. These things are very well documented. They're agreed upon. But there is something that causes a lot of contention in the text. And that's specifically when you're looking in all of these stories about miracles and saints, like all of them are about water. It's about starting or stopping floods, um, calling down torrential downpours, ending droughts to, um, to you know, feed crops with a bunch of rain, um, moving the trajectory of rivers. It's like all water myths, all water stories. Um, Why? What? That is the big question that we're going to investigate in today's Oh, boy. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, so there are theories. I'm glad you asked why. Because everyone is like, why are all these flood stories happening in this one area, in this one time, suddenly? Does that mean that there were floods? Maybe. So one big theory is this theory called the medieval deluge, um, which is a theory that there was a period of major climactic change that has supposedly occurred in the late Roman and post-Roman Italy. Um, and many say that this was basically the nail in the coffin of the Western Roman Empire. So there oh. were, people say there were tons of floods. Um, another theory, theory number two, is that the floods are not the result of climactic change, but actually a result of the fall of the Roman Empire because of the abandonment of these hydraulic systems that the Roman Empire had invested in. So, oh, because they had the aqueducts. The aqueducts, exactly. So as people are leaving the cities and abandoning this infrastructure, those hydraulic systems break down. Um, there's a ton of invasions and suddenly as they're breaking down, you get floods in random places. So that's another theory. So, okay. I can already see how environmental determinism would play into this. This is really cool. Keep Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And then there are other scientists out there saying, uh, no one should be trying to draw conclusions about climate from these literary texts, because obviously these texts coming from the church are just a literary motif that was effective for the church to gain more followers and power as evidenced by the rise of the cult of saints. Uh, and their theory is basically church leaders use this motif of power over the elements to put that power in the hands of saints were accessible at a local level. Um, and saints were described as devoted followers of Christ. So that's a pretty tantalizing idea. Like, hi, Things are tough for you right now. Everything is falling apart. You don't know what's going on in the world. But guess what? The church says God will reward you with the power to control the weather if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> Interesting. So if I'm getting this right, there's three competing ideas, right? There's yeah. one, there's two based on a very real uh, flood aspect happening, either caused by uh, climate change or because of mm -hmm. the fall of the Roman Empire, or three, because the church made it all up. Yeah. Wow. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. And it's the Dark Ages. So, like, how are we to know? Glad you asked, Jared. <laughs> Science is how we are to know. 
Um, and we already talked a little bit about this, but it is important for science to get involved here um, because people love to sniff around the fall of the Roman Empire and make predictions about what's going to happen in our future. <laughs> Oh, this is um, scary. Okay, I like it. Yeah, so there's a lot of parallels between the Romans and our current world power, which would be the United States and late-stage capitalism. Yikes, yikes. Um, we are also going through a rough time right now. Um, <laughs> we're engaged in several wars all over the place. There's a there's a plague. <laughs> Pandemic. Oh, boy. Um, there's lots of people moving around, lots of refugees. And I don't know if you've heard, Jared, but our climate is also changing. Is it really? It is. Um, so this historical period is having a major resurgence right now in the public eye. Um, and there's a lot of discourse over exactly what caused things to change so, so much so fast back then, both culturally and societally. And that's leading to a lot of different conclusions um, about what might happen to us now, predictions about the future. Um, basically, climate change is such a big, scary issue right now. People really want to figure out what role, if any, that climate change might have had in the fall of Rome and its aftermath, because we like to look there when things are bad. Um, but uh, we cannot look at religious texts as a good source of actual weather information um, because that's anecdotal. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of fighting about that until interstage left, we have modern science and our researchers for this paper. So I'm clapping if you can't hear that. Yay, science. All right. So now it's time for jargon corner number two. Ooh. Um, term one, paleoclimatology. Ah, this is a fun one. Uh, paleoclimatology is the study of uh, the climates of yester era, period, age, whatever time scale you want to use. It's not now. Exactly. It's the study of ancient climates, i.e. climates prior to the widespread availability of instrumental records. Oh. Yes. All right. So paleoclimatology is the uh, one of the scientific categories. What are they called? Discipline. Thank you. One of the scientific disciplines that we're pulling in here. Um, next, we have speleology. Speleology is the study of caves, and one of my favorite words. Oh, I pronounced it wrong. Speleology. Oh, I have no idea. I just think it's... Because, like, spelunker, right? So, like, spelunker, speleology. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just did yeah. that in my head. Speleology, speleology, spoolology, however you want to pronounce it. It's the study of caves. <laughs> yes. Um, and a related word, popping off of that. Uh, any idea what a speleothem is? A speleothem? Mm-hmm. Not speleotherm. Them. There's no R in it. Speleotherm. Although I definitely read it as speleotherm for a long time. Speleotherm. No, I'm drawing up a blank. Um, it is a secondary mineral deposit formed in a cave. So stalagmites, oh. stalactites, columns, flowstones, crystals, um, material minerals that are derived by a physiochemical reaction from the primary mineral in bedrock. That makes sense. That word popped up a lot in the uh, centipede article from several episodes back. So I, I was wondering why I heard it. Because it was also caves. Yeah, man. Yeah. So it's like cave features, basically. Yeah. Um, so we have paleoclimatology, speleology, speleothem. Um, next, we have another fun little word, isotope. Ah, uh, isotope are, <laughs> isotope are, um, isotopes, plural, are, um, I got this wrong in a past episode, so let me get this right. Isotopes are sort of 
different weights of uh, the same element because they either, I think they're missing protons. You're so right? close. Oh, so no. close. neutrons? Uh, yeah. Gotcha. So we have atoms, our smallest unit of matter, and they're made up of a nucleus and then electrons around the outside. Mm -hmm. So their chemical reactions, like what they do in chemistry, totally depends on their electrons. Um, but their mass or their weight depends on their nucleus, their protons and neutrons. So isotopes, like you said, are, there can be many different isotopes of the same element. But and the, each one of those isotopes will have the same amount of electrons and behave the same way in a chemical reaction, but it will have a different atomic weight or mass because it has a different number of neutrons. Right, right. I think we were talking in a previous episode about like carbon-14, which is the isotope that kind of degrades after 50,000 years. So if you want to look at something that's pre-50,000 years, you just, you, you shouldn't find any carbon-14. Yeah. Just to tie something else in. Yeah. So then the thing about isotopes is that they're unstable. Um, so you can use them to measure things in really long periods of time, um, basically based on how long it takes them to decay. <laughs> um, so an isotope that is radioactive um, is an isotope with an unstable nucleus that starts to lose energy by radiation. Um, and so oh that it has a certain amount of time that it will take for each isotope to lose all of its energy. Um, and using that, those time scales, we can look at how much of certain isotopes are present in areas and using that measurement of how long it takes things to decay to a certain point, we can figure out how long the things have been there. Can I share one more related fun fact? Yeah. I was actually going to share this, but I forgot about it. Um, it's about the world's first doomsday weapon, which is uh, called the Cobalt 60 bomb. Did you read about this in the same book we read that we didn't realize that we were reading at the same time? Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. That's yes. a fun fact from the Disappearing Spoon. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so for anyone who does, hasn't heard of that, which is probably most people, because why would people talk about such a scary concept? But the Cobalt 60 bomb is something that sort of does the opposite of like an atom bomb, which its goal isn't to release radioactivity. It's to release immense amount of energy and heat. But cobalt-60 stays radioactive for years and years and years. So all you have to do is seed in an environment with cobalt-60, and it's unlivable for hundreds of years. Yay. Doomsday weapon 1.0. Not cool. Yeah, no. Yeah, so that's the negative side of radio radioactivity. The positive side is you can figure out how old things are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then the type of uh, radiometric dating which we just talked about, um, that's used by our researchers in this article is uranium-thorium dating, which is a fun radiometric dating technique um, because it actually calculates the age from the degree to which um, secular equilibrium has been restored between uh, a radioactive isotope and its radioactive parent. So like there are some, some radioactive isotopes that decay into other things, um, but the equilibrium is basically when the rate of decay and the rate of creating the baby, uh, are the same. This is real complicated stuff, but I think all you really need to know about uranium thorium dating is that just like what we were talking about, it's a way to figure out how old something is. Like it. Yeah. Okay. Now we have our jargon words, our fun science words. Let's bring them to the site of our investigation or study. Uh, Renella Cave. So, of course, it's a cave 
because we're talking Rinella. about biology. <laughs> you said Ranella, right? Yeah. That is the genus of the uh, cane toad, which uh, both of us have a history with. Anyway, I keep spreading fun facts for no reason. You're going to confuse a lot of people, Jared. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Ranella cave has nothing to do with toads. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a small little cave. It's on the right slope of the Frigido River, uh, Frigido River Valley, on the western side of the Apuan Alps. So, and it's uh, the entrance to this cave is at a higher altitude, um, but mean annual precipitation can reach there. Okay. So, it's a good place to get information about climate. Um, and the uh, paleoclimatologists and speleologists involved in this study trekked on up to that cave and found themselves the perfect speleothem a stalagmite um, that was able to provide information, a record from the years zero to 900 AD. Wow. Okay. Yeah. How um, Did they mention like how fine scale it was? Um, it, within 14 years. That's, that's a big deal. Exactly. It's huge. It is one of the most highly resolved and robustly dated records for this chronological interval in the central Mediterranean. So this is like, the best stalagmite they've ever found. Jeez, you found a jackpot of a paper. I know. <laughs> um, really good stalagmite. Um, really good stalagmite. Real good. That's the, that's the title of this episode, by the way. Yeah, really good stalagmite. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so by looking at the layers of minerals that are deposited over the centuries, they can get an idea of what the environmental conditions were through the centuries. And they can basically look at this stalagmite after taking cores and look at it like tree rings. Um, so based on the rings and this uranium therium dating process, um, they were able to find out that um, in the sixth century CE, in northern and central Italy, it was very, very wet. <laughs> okay. So that would support the idea that, was, that there was a real flood or like multiple. Yeah, exactly. So it was, the precipitation rate was much higher than the previous or later years, which again, this gives us a record from zero to 900. So lots to compare. It was super, super moist and wet during the sixth century. Um, and I just wanted to mention one of the things they did to figure this out. It was by looking at oxygen isotopes. So apparently oxygen isotopes are used a lot in paleoclimate studies. So in Earth's atmosphere, we have oxygen. That's what we breathe, right? Yes. But actually, we have a combination of several different oxygen isotopes. So it's not stable oxygen that we're breathing most of the time. That's a scary <laughs> thought, but keep going. Yeah. Um, most of our atmosphere is uh, O16. Like 99.7%. So, mo I mean, of, our, of the oxygen in our atmosphere um, is oxygen 16, which is not radioactive. Do not worry. Um, but there's also a small percentage of oxygen 17 and oxygen 18. And those are quite a bit heavier. So, basically, the lighter oxygen isotope molecules are much more likely to evaporate and fall with precipitation because they're lighter. Um, and that means that freshwater and polar ice contain slightly less of the heavy isotope than the air does or than seawater does. So they can tell when it was raining because there's a significant amount less of this heavier oxygen isotope. Interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. So they looked at that 
um, and found out that it was very moist. It was raining a lot. So that's what they get from the cave is that it was definitely raining. What it does not tell us is why it was raining so much in the 6th century. So for that, we have to bring in another area of expertise, some climatologists. So climatologists have been studying paleoclimate for a while, and a likely source of this moisture in this area is a long-lasting negative phase of the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is a period of reduced atmospheric pressure that basically brought a ton of moist air or would bring a ton of moist air right over northern and central Italy. Did it say the time scale on which that thing repeats? It didn't. I should have looked into that. (laughs) (laughs) They might have said it and I just skipped over it, but apparently the North Atlantic Oscillation is a thing. Um, And also the water from the Atlantic has a higher concentration of those lighter oxygen isotopes than the average precipitation in Northern Italy. Um, so by looking at those oxygen isotopes, again, they were able to confirm and connect it to this North Atlantic oscillation. Cool. It left a, uh, tell- telltale isotopic trace. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good thing in any study like this, where you get multiple lines of evidence that say the same thing. Exactly. So from these two, we know, yes, it was very wet in this area at this time. And it was because of the North Atlantic Oscillation. So we've got agreeing so far, it was very wet, it was raining a lot. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there were lots of floods. Lots right, because that would depend on local geography. Exactly. So then we got to bring in the geologists and Ooh. the archaeologists. Hence why there <laughs> I understand why there are so many authors now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we bring them in and they say, yup, there were a lot of floods, actually. Um, so they provided a lot of examples, but the most striking um, is a bunch of alluvium sedimentation that basically buried the remains of an ancient city called Medina. Um, wait, alluvial wait, wait, sedimentation. Is, okay, thank God. Yeah. It's a bunch of <laughs> clay or silt or gravel that is carried by floods and deposited when they slow down. Okay, gotcha. So it's a way to see, oh, yeah, there was a flood here or there was a river here. Um and based on how much of that sedimentation is, you can tell if it was a flood or a river because floods happen once and rivers are rivers. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's one example. Literally a flood buried a city. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I was so caught on that other word. I didn't even catch that the first time. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there were a lot of big floods during this time. They were really happening. They were not just stories. Um, so now science has come in. And brought to um, to our little story about the 6th century that, yes, it was hella wet. Yes, there were floods. However, does that mean everything in the stories were true? Were saints controlling the weather? Well, probably. You know, probably not. <laughs> no, they were not. <laughs> <laughs> but it does show that those saints were writing about something that was happening at the time. I mean, you write what you know. You're also a lot more likely to read and consume things that are related to your day-to-day struggles. So... That makes sense. Um, now, I want to go into a little bit what writings exactly they were looking at, um, because it involves a really cool open access database. Ooh, okay. So now, yeah, now that we've brought in the modern scientists, we're going back to the historians, uh, marrying the two, if you will, by this gorgeous publication, um, the Cult of Saints in Late Antiquity Database, or the okay. CSLA. 
CSLA sounds easier to say. Yes. So it's made possible by the European Research Council and Oxford University. And what it's doing is it's making readily accessible and searchable as much as possible of the early evidence for cult of Christian saints. Um, so the key texts are presented in their original language, all with English translation and contextual commentary, and they're all free. So it uh, used to be ooh, before this cool. database that if you wanted to take your scientific findings and compare them to historical texts, you had to go to all of these crazy libraries all over the place. But now they're all in one area for you. Yeah, but now it just takes a search and even you or I can go look at these things. Now this is you or I, not you or I, which is the first thing my mind went to. You university or I. <laughs> you Anyone you at University of Rhode Island can also do this. <laughs> Anyone anywhere can do this. You can go and look at all of the stories that were being told um, to create the cult of saints. Were they okay with being called a cult? Did they know? Because like generally- oh, They did not know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the cult of saints is scary. It sounds diabolical. Uh, to me, it's also kind of cool um, yeah. from an aesthetic uh, from an aesthetic perspective. Um, so this, the cult of saints is when like people got obsessed with like the bones of martyrs and like finding the cross and like finding the grail and all of that kind of stuff. So they thought that martyrs basically by imitating Christ, saints and martyrs sort of like took holiness into themselves. And so then the remains of their holiness of their holy bodies and the things they did would be points of contact between earth and heaven. Um, <laughs> not well, okay not to yeah. alienate any of our like catholic listeners if they are here or anything but i just think it's so ironic that the catholic church demonizes all these practices whereas the, these people these oh god they were trying to it sounds like they were trying to consume the flesh of um other saints yeah a little bit not, yeah like shine a mirror on yourself catholic church not the people who yeah anyway. yeah no but the power system Yes. Um, which was very much a power system in the 6th century as well. It was becoming one. It was becoming. <laughs> um, and the cult of saints was a huge part of that because it allowed people to, like, interact with holiness on a local level. Yeah, and eat them. <laughs> um, it gave people hope that they could, you know, that these miracles were happening now and were happening tangibly and they could be a part of it and their life could be a miracle if they joined the church. Um, mm. You have like a ton of like charismatic leaders popping up, but they're all under the umbrella of the church. I can't wait to read the article titled Vector Marketing in the Dark Ages. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the church definitely wrote the book on marketing, that's for sure. Yeah, dude. Um, so they use the CSLA database um, and they looked at six major groups of ancient and medieval texts in Greek and Latin containing information specifically on central and northern Italy, because that is the area that they were able to get good climate records for of by the absolute best speleothem. Um, so they were looking at uh, the works of the prolific early 6th century writer Inodius. They were looking at the Verii of Cassiodorus, who was the head of civil government of Italy in the late 6th century. Got a fancy they, name for sure. I know. <laughs> they were looking at a text called The History of the Gothic Wars by Procopius, uh, who was an Eastern Roman historian, looking at the letters and writings associated with Pope Gregory the Great. Um, they were looking at mid-7th century brief biographies of previous Roman popes, and they were looking at early 7th century historiographic traditions um, preserved in much later text by Paul the Deacon. So 
we have any history nerds, that's where they were looking. I don't know what that all means, but... You said so many words there. I was like, oh, I think I know it's that. It's a bunch word. of people. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bunch of names of people who were important back then. That's that's the Those are the people who were spreading the rumors about the saints. There you go. One of their names sounded very phallic, which sort of foreshadows what's to come at the end of this episode. A little bit. Um, <clears throat> so they searched for nature-based miracles uh, and miracles over the elements, not just water miracles. Um, and they searched, they compared the region of central to northern Italy and the region of Gaul which is now France, but it was Gaul back then. Um, And France was the control group because um, there's a lot of good climate data from over there. And there was no wet period at this time in France. So they were spared from it. Yes, they were. Um, I mean, France is much further up and over. That makes sense. There's a big reason why I hate geography and it's because I can't keep it in my head. So thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. Um, So they compared central Northern Italy and Gaul as the control group, and they compared uh, the ratio of water miracles to fire miracles in relation (laughs) to the total number of miracle stories. I really enjoy that terminology. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, you know, one of those theories is that the church was just using miracles over the elements in general, and it has nothing to do with the actual climate. Right. Um, So, I mean, they're controlling for a lot of variables. These are some good scientists here. Um, So the results basically... In France, there's a pretty, there's a lot of elemental miracles, but it's pretty well distributed. Um, In Italy, all water miracles, just tons of water miracles. (laughs) Um, And it's that cluster of water miracles in Italy where we started this journey because people were looking at that and saying something must have happened with the weather in Italy at that time. And, you know, there are people saying, nah, 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 that's anecdotal. And yeah, church texts uh, is anecdotal when you're trying to make predictions about climate. But it turns out, after actually looking at the science of the climate of the time, that those texts actually um, did reflect what was going on. Not, a, not necessarily the exact circumstances of what was happening to people, but absolutely the environmental stress that people were facing at that time. Yeah, it even mirrors, um, going a little bit further back, I'm sticking with people this time, but like the ancient flood myths of so many ancient societies that all told Mm -hmm. very similar stories about a very similar flood, it kind of brings back to that. Doesn't it? Because people always look at that and say, it must have happened because it says so in all of these books. So now (laughs) I really want to see, I really want this study to be done for all of the water miracles. (laughs) All of the miracles. I was about to say that, yeah, man. It gets me super interested in the relationship between storytelling and climate. And then the relationship between the amalgamation of those things and big societal change. Yeah, (laughs) this is really cool. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Um, What it does not answer uh, is that big question that everyone is looking for, which is what caused the fall of the Roman Empire? Um, This study doesn't prove any of the one theories we talked about at the top, uh, but it also doesn't disprove any of them. It actually incorporates all three but only if we let go of the idea of one-way determinism, because there's no factor we can point at in this situation and say that is the cause. Uh, No one wins the battle for most important factor. There's no big bad guy we have to look out for. There's no roadmap for the fall of Rome. But what we do learn from this is that climatic phenomena are really important factors in the speed and the scale of social and cultural change, but they do not determine cultural change in a predictable way. 
So the warfare and the flooding destroyed a lot of earlier social institutions. That opened up space for new leadership. And the church was able to fill that space by weaving the actual reality of the climate into stories that bolstered their own power or their perception people had of them as being the ones you should follow, the ones who have the power, um, the ones who have the connection to God and weather. (laughs) Um, So that's like their narrative of power. So all of these things really interweave and interact in a really unique way in this region when you look at it from all of these different angles at once. Um, So it turns out by bringing this integrated approach, basically, it's a great way to avoid those simplistic and often catastrophic, looking at you, environmental determinism, uh, interpretations of these impacts so we can actually understand the actual experience of the societies at the time instead of just looking for the big bad guy and what we should be avoiding. You know what I mean? (laughs) Now, isn't that just something that happens time and time again in every scientific field? It's always more complex than just focusing a scale on one thing. Yeah. So like historical textual sources, like these saint stories, they're not good. They're not the place you should go first for finding out what the historical climate was like. No one's arguing that. Or about Um, how people who don't support that ideology should live their lives, if we're going to say it. Yeah, for sure. Um, But what you can do if you have questions is you can put these historical sources next to scientific sources, like the study of caves and paleoclimate. And that can help us learn about the cultural perceptions and the social dynamics uh, related. Basically give us a much clearer picture of exactly what was happening at the time. It also, this study shows us that just because you have conflicting hypotheses and different conflicting lines of evidence doesn't mean that one or the other is going to win. Um, And that actually we all can win if you just increase the data density. That is very satisfying as an ending to this. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it a lot. More data. More data. Um, yeah. So in summary, uh, don't go down the road of environmental determinism, um, but don't overreact in the other way and go towards social or cultural determinism. Um, ask a lot of questions to a lot of different people and use what these scientists would call a new evidence-based hybrid network approach to the study of past climate impacts, which offers an opportunity to show how different and unpredictable our reactions of our own societies can be to climactic changes. I strive to live my life in the way of a hybridized network approach. Me too. Okay, I have a conclusion that I wrote, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. Um, Yeah, do it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What can we learn from this study? Well... Causing miracle stories to proliferate, it's not what one would expect as the key impact of climactic change. In the traditional scheme of climactic determinism, uh, subsistence crisis and infrastructural damage would have been the main outcome, which would then bring about political or economic instability. In other words, one expects the automatic reaction chain that's easy to predict. More rain causes more floods. Floods cause ruin. Ruin causes instability. Instability causes collapse. But... When you look closer and look from more angles, it's clear that nothing of that sort actually happened in 6th century Italy. It was a much more complicated and subtle process in which the impact changing climate had on society was not deterministic and not predictable. The impact only was what it was because of its integration into a complex network of individual human social actors. The climactic phenomenon 
became part of the social dynamics and the cultural universe of a particular historical society, hence the scale and specificity of its impact depended on the society it encountered. Cultural and natural factors created together in a single socio-ecological system, a hybrid cultural-natural network. To put it more generically, each society and culture has the potential to react differently to the same climate change. Aha! I like that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. A fitting end. Yeah. Good summary, by the way. Thank you. If this is a compliment Madison episode. Yay, it's a compliment Madison episode. <laughs> yeah. I went. Has... I, I really went past my comfort zone. Last time I picked an article, went into physics. So this time I went more into kind of comfort zone and I was like, climate change, humans, let's go. <laughs> yeah, it really showed. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Again, pop up Madison episode. Um, <laughs> that was a very cool article. Are you ready to hear about some turtle stuff? I do want to hear about turtle penises. Um, so, um, yes, let's, let's hop on over to the corrections corner. Tell me about Sorry, this turtle. Was, was, was there anything more you wanted to say about, um, you know. There's not anything more I want to say. I was just like, all right, mental shift, climate change, the sixth century, medieval Europe, turtle penises. Okay. Here we <laughs> Very good. So, uh, last week I asserted, uh, incorrectly that turtles possessed hemipedes, which are basically these separate but paired structures, uh, through which, uh, the males deliver sperm. And um, I asserted that, no, a turtle penis looked like a hand reaching out of a butthole and spreading its fingers. So you were more right than I was. There is one, uh, kind of turtle called, let me find it. So soft shell turtles, uh, any turtle in the family Trionychidae, um, they have a five-lobed penis. That's the one I'm talking about. Yes, it is exactly the one you're talking about. A hand about. reaching out of a butthole and spreading its five fingers. <laughs> Indeed. Um, now, I also stumbled upon a very interesting area of research, which is the science of uh, turtle penises. Uh, first of all, there's some disagreement as to whether the turtle penis should actually be called a penis, but... There are some very intriguing similarities. Um, human, not just humans, mammals and turtles have both evolved a penis independently. Uh, this is known pretty strongly based on some pretty important anatomical differences, but we converged on a very similar design of a hydraulically powered uh, dick. Hydraulically powered, like blood powered, right? Hydraulically blood, powered. blood or otherwise fluid, yes. Ew, I don't like that. <laughs> now, here's where it's different. Um, mammals are rather unique in having a penis with an enclosed sort of shaft type area. Um, but following in the direction of other uh, vertebrates, <laughs> I I don't know the right way to say this. So when oh, she's blushing, there's a can <laughs> there's some canals that the sperm just travels through in the exterior. And then they lead into these two little slits. But basically, the sperm just travels down through open air and then goes into these two little slits. And then there's a lot of differences on, like, how many lobes and how many forks it goes in. But all turtles have just the one penis. They're going like, for, like, they're going for, like, the spray method instead of, like, the accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is surprisingly accurate, um... If, if, if we're going to go down that, that, that train of thought. But... Well, good for them. So I can, I should probably stop there. Um, humans and turtles, because we are mammals, have remarkably similar penises, which was, I guess. Turtles the, are not uh, mammals. 
What's up? Turtles are not mammals. What did I say? Humans and turtles? Humans and turtles, because we are mammals. Wait, am I having a brain fart? You said humans and turtles, because we are mammals, have remarkably similar penises. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) you are completely right. Turtles are not, are not, and have never been mammals. Turtles are not Um, mammals. (laughs) But we do have um, a penis. Oh, so there's supposed to be a butt in there. (laughs) (laughs) This is another fun fact. It's actually thought that uh, in mammals, uh, the, all that stuff moved to the exterior because of endothermy, the warm bloodedness would- Yeah, it got too hot inside. Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Your Inner Fish by Neil Shubin. Amazing book that does go into detail about that. So good. Oh, speaking of penises and being too hot, uh, apparently (laughs) microplastics and climate change have the potential to to, uh, shrink human penises. A new study was just uh, uh, put out about that. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. As if millennials and Gen Zers need another reason not to have kids. I know, right? (laughs) Oh, boy. This took some turns. It did, but we we brought it back. <laughs> we brought it back to climate change. Yeah, oh, I boy. thought about covering one of those articles, but it's it was a little doomsday for me. Um, too many jokes, and also yeah, too many opportunities for dick jokes. <laughs> like if if you're doing an article that involves penises or tits, I I can hold back, not even that much. As we saw last week. And so if I chose one, I I couldn't... Get, no, I can't. <laughs> it would probably take me twice as long to edit at the least. It would just be a comedy set. And it would not be useful to our mission. <laughs> so now we know which routes not to go down. Yeah. Uh, My sense of humor is too lowbrow for me to pick a penis article. <laughs> <laughs> There's the title of this episode. Um... No, definitely not. <laughs> okay. I have nothing more. Do you have anything more to say? I do not have anything more except like I'm already preemptively thinking about the editing and feeling like you're going to have a task ahead of you. But Yeah, good good luck to me. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Well, we are at the end. Um, dear friends, if you made it this far, thank you again. Thank you hey. so much. And I'm very sorry to anyone who didn't want to hear that. But yeah, also you just, to the ones that you did, you're welcome. let us hang out in your ear holes for like a full hour of quantum time. Um, thank you. And uh, if you think anyone else would let us do this to their ear holes, share. Yeah, share. Great. Give us a review. Madison review. will read it. And also uh, let you um, live on her porch? No, that's weird. I don't have a porch. Madison you can live on a- escape. Yes. Um, also, she'll buy your car. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do write a review, I will read it. It's still a promise. Absolutely. All you gotta do is review our podcast. Just one little review. Thank you, small child. How did you get in here? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. This is the end of the podcast about science. Indeed. Uh, uh, thank you. Goodbye. This is my robot voice.